Well, I am uh, truly thankful to be here with you guys today, and uh, thanks for that intro, Adam. And uh, it's great, uh, Laurie Carlson down here, who's been a part of y'all's church from the beginning with uh, her husband, Paul, who's been an elder. Um, it's funny, we've talked about this whole deal of me having six kids and being a church planter, and one of the things that Laurie told me way back when uh, she realized we had six kids and we were planting is she said, well, you got to birth them before you rebirth them. And so it's like, the best way to grow a church plant is just to have a lot of kids. And so uh, at least I have six people that come, um, because they have to. Um, but all that said, uh, it really is an honor to preach here today, and I love Tori. I, I love what God is doing in it through him. Uh, when we planted in Round Rock in 2007, uh, my family moved from the Houston area. Anybody from Houston? Um, I never want to live there again. I love the people there. Never want to live there again. I'm great with that. Uh, but... We moved in 2007 to Round Rock and Planted. Uh, we were so, so thankful for the opportunity we had and uh, so thankful to be a part of this broader association of churches, as, as Adam was talking about. And, and now across our city and region, really like 26 or 27 now churches across this region that all believe that like our desire is to see every man, woman, and child know Jesus. And, and so to know that we have that kind of brotherhood and partnership in the ministry is really amazing. And when Tori asked me to come preach here, he, he said, hey, we're talking about partners in the gospel. And so I was immediately drawn to Philippians chapter 1. I felt like the Spirit just put that on my heart uh, almost instantaneous. And so I've been thinking about that, meditating on that since that time. And so we're going to be there this morning in Philippians chapter 1. And, and to that end, if you guys do not have a Bible, uh, if you'll just lift your hand real fast, we actually have some guys that will hand you a Bible. We'd love for you to have your own copy. If you don't own a Bible, uh, take that as a free gift uh, from the well. And, uh, and, and if you have a lot of Bibles, don't keep it, okay? Use the ones you've got already, all right? So, um, Philippians chapter 1, and, and I want to dive right in because in Philippians chapter 1, this letter from Paul to the church at Philippi, these believers that were there, uh, what he says in the front end of this book uh, really expresses my heart for you guys. And so I think it's helpful for me just to read it because um, I, I resonate with the words that Paul gives us in these first few verses here. Actually, verses three through six say the, this to us, okay? I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Like That's how Paul felt about these believers at Philippi, and as I and my elders and our church body prays for other churches across Austin, you guys are one that we pray for more regularly because we have this partnership through the association. And as our elders prayed for you, uh, we pray with great joy. We pray with great thanks. And we pray also being confident the God who started this will also complete it. And he will finish it. So, you know, what's great about being a church planter is that we're doing something that cannot fail. And that doesn't mean that church plants don't come and go. We planted in the south part of the city, uh, south part of the city. When we got down there, there had been 32 churches planted in the previous 10 years that no longer were there. Yeah, a lot of turnover. But here's the thing. God's church will be built because Jesus said, I will build my church. So people don't build his church. God builds his church. And we get to participate in that. And the church can have expressions. It can have gatherings like this. But ultimately, our confidence and our, and our, our hope is in God and what he's doing. And I'm so incredibly thankful to be a part of that in this city of Austin, Texas. And, and knowing that you guys are here in the East just uh, really encourages my heart personally and our elders and our whole church body. That said, 
I want us just to dive right into the text in Philippians because Paul is, is giving us a picture of maturity for the church. Now, how many of you guys have gotten caught up in the face app craze this week? How many of you are tired of seeing pictures of people that look old, okay? Um, <laughs> I mean, seriously, we're at our community group on Wednesday night. We can't even have a serious conversation because everybody's like taking each other's picture and then like, hey, look at that. You know, it's like, like seriously, shut it off, okay? But... I was thinking about that face app and why it's so funny to us because we, we love, you know, like the thought of like what we're going to look like when we're old and what we're, when we're mature. And by the way, just because you get old doesn't mean you necessarily are more mature, by the way. Um, but I was thinking about that idea that in the book of Philippians, Paul's giving a picture of what a mature church looks like, what a, what a developed and a mature church actually looks like. And I think it's a really helpful book. It's a really insightful book. It's a really uh, profound book. And it's one that I personally really enjoy coming to again and again. Uh, Part of it is because these verses in here, I mean, there's a lot of coffee cup verses in here. You know what I'm talking about? Like you find the verses in Philippians all over coffee cups or if you like cross stitch, probably a cross stitch on the wall. I know nobody in here does that. Um, But, you know, in my my house, my mom always put verses in front of our toilet because since we spent time there, we'd be able to memorize scripture while we were there. Um, (laughs) A lot of Philippians verses, okay? Um, or, or even if you're, if, you, if you're a sports, if you're an athlete, Philippians 4.13, I'm sure all of you could quote that, right? Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, even though that's not even what he was talking about. It had nothing to do with touchdowns or home runs, but uh, contentness is, is a big deal. But all that said, uh, I just want to focus on four verses at the very end of chapter one. And at the very end of chapter one, we find these four verses that really are summing up the entire theme of the book of Philippians. And, and these four verses are, are something that I'm praying for you today. I've been praying for you in preparation for this talk and even praying uh, that my, my church expression in South Austin would live in these mature realities of the gospel and, and that we would, as we partner, we would think about how are we growing in these particular ways, okay? So I wanna encourage you guys today. I wanna challenge you a little bit. I know Adam said punching the face with the gospel. Um, hopefully you don't feel like it, but, 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 but I do think sometimes we just need a little bit of a shot in the arm. We need a little bit of encouragement, a little kick in the pants. Like, hey, don't forget how incredible and awesome this gospel message we have is in this mission that we're on, okay? And so I wanna encourage you in that today. And some of you may be brand new to the Christian scene. Some of you may not even be a, a Christ follower yet. You've not received the gospel yet. And if that's where you are, first off, I just wanna say, I, I'm just uh, really thankful that you're here. And really, um, and, and, and just really grateful that you would take a risk to be in a setting like this. And I hope that today what you find is a group of people who really love each other and who love God. And it's a place where you can just wrestle with your doubts and your fears and your questions, okay? Um, I, we try to create an environment like that down in South Austin where people can come even before they believe and know that it's a place you can belong and you can work through the struggles of life. Because we're all in a work in progress, right? Okay? All right. Got to get to the text. Here we go, verse 27. Just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them but of your deliverance. And this is from God. For it is given, has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, having the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. 
So in this book of Philippians, because Paul doesn't address a whole lot of behavioral issues, like in the book of Corinthians, you guys know the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians in particular, that was a messed up place, okay? And he had to address a lot of, uh, of behaviors that were problem, immorality that was in the church. In this book, he just dr- dives right in to these mature behaviors, and he says to them, uh, I want you to really focus in on the gospel, and I want you to understand it's going to be hard work, and you're going to even suffer for it, okay? And we're going to kind of break that apart a little bit together this morning. But Paul, the reason why I resonate with him and why I feel such a camaraderie with him, kindred spirit or whatever you want to call that, is that he was a church planner. I mean, he was an amazing church planner. He planted churches all over the known world during his time. And what's awesome about that is before he was a church planter, um, he actually was a persecutor of Christians. He was a murderer. He went all over the place killing Christians, trying to shut them down. And God actually met him on a road, a road to Damascus when he was on his way to persecute more Christians, right? Blinded him. His name was Saul at the time. He has a radical conversion. Uh, In fact, this guy Ananias uh, who's there, is given this task of praying for Paul to receive his sight back because he was blinded on the road to Damascus, um, which can you imagine being Ananias, by the way? I, I've always thought about this, this guy who gets told, hey, you, can, you need to go and pray for this guy who's killing Christians. Uh, I'm sure he really appreciated that assignment from the Lord, okay? But he did, and Paul is radically saved, and Paul uh, becomes one of the greatest missionaries, if not the greatest missionary ever on the planet Earth. And he specifically wasn't just evangelizing, he was planting churches. He was raising up leaders and establishing communities, expressions of the church in all these metropolitan areas. And one of them was Philippi. And as he was there in Philippi planting this church, he grew in such a deep, deep affection for these people. And it's clear when he writes his book. Again, I can't tell you everything that's in this first chapter even, but you can hear it in his language that he loves these people deeply and dearly. And as he's doing that, as he's expressing himself to them, he he really gives them uh, this, this instruction I just gave you, just read together, about how to live as a mature body together. And the first thing he says as he's working his way through this is he says just one thing. I think in the ESV it says only, but just one thing, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you could sum up uh, what you would want to say to someone as a Christ follower, a fellow believer, okay, and you would to try to encourage them or to challenge them, I mean, this would be a great thing to say to them. Just one thing, uh, not have your quiet time or not go tell people about Jesus. That's, those are all great things. But he says, one thing, live a life worthy of the gospel you have received. Now, um, just so we're crystal clear, what is the gospel that we received? We just sang about it in this Living Hope song. It's just a great song. A lot of the songs we sing sort of had this gospel narrative to them. Hopefully, uh, we're, we're understanding that God created a world of perfection. He created an amazing place, which, by the way, speaks to his goodness. That he creates this beautiful garden. He puts Adam and Eve in this beautiful place with all that they need. He's, he's perfect provision. And he says, you have one rule. Can you imagine living in a world with one rule? <laughs> Would that be awesome? Because now we have like so many rules. But they have one rule. Don't eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And of course, we know the story three chapters into the entire Bible, this, this awesome book, this, this recording of God's story and redemption, three chapters in, people blow it. Now, don't give Adam and Eve such a hard time, right? Because if we were there, we'd do it too. But the reality is, is they blow it. And when they blow it, um, it separates them from God and it, and it even causes division, uh, separation from, the, from one another. 
We see this blame-shifting thing happen. We see this whole breakdown. And what we know to be true is that at that moment, the world broke. That the world was cursed. That the world experienced what it hadn't experienced before that, which was everything that was working right was now not working right. So work became harder. Uh, relationships became harder. Fear and shame and guilt came into the scene. And it was a brutal thing. And we still are experiencing that. We experience it normatively now. We experience much of that. We just look at the world. I mean, even if you're not a Christ follower, when you look at the world, you see the brokenness, don't you? You see the mess. You see the injustice. You see people being treated in ways they should never be treated. You see people being devalued and dehumanized. You see brokenness on every front of life. You see it in your own self, if you're honest. And see, that's what happens when sin entered the scene is that this world broke. And from that point forward, Every human being that was born was born with this propensity to sin and to reject God and to rebel and to say, God, I'm in charge, not you. But here's the amazing thing about the gospel. This gospel that he's saying, live in life and worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourselves in life worthy of the gospel. Is that God didn't say, well, scrap you, done. Forget you, done. And just kick humanity to the curb. What did he do? Some of us have heard this so much, we've lost sight of the wonder and the awe of this moment and that he looked at humanity and he loved us. And instead of rejecting us, he pursued us. And he pursued us specifically in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus really is the good news because what happens is, is God sends his very own son to pay the penalty for that rebellion. And from that place, we now can be reconciled to God. The relationship that was broken can be restored through the person and work of Jesus. And so all that brokenness in the world, there's actually hope that it will be fixed, that it will be restored, that one day Christ will return and all things will be made new. And I'm looking forward to that day, by the way. I'm looking forward to the day when there's no more of the suffering and the, sh- the shame and, and the, the hardship of this life because it's all made new in Christ. It's all made new in God's ultimate redemptive plan. So Paul says, this grace gift that you received, this forgiveness, this reconciliation with God that Jesus paid for, like salvation is a free gift in the Christian message, but it was not free to God. It was incredibly costly, right? And he says to us as human beings, he says, this free gift that I give to you that I paid for, I purchased. Now receive by faith this gift and live a life worthy of that. Live a life that says, I am a sinner who needs saving and I am now God's child by his grace. And I have this new identity, this new place, this new way of living in light of this identity that I have received in Christ. And so Paul says to them, he says, all of your life, not just your Sunday life, not just your uh, community group life, all of your life, live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Now, what's interesting is that in the Greek language here, he actually uses a word that speaks to uh, this idea of citizenship. In fact, it's the word that we get our word police or politics from. And and it's because in just two chapters over, he says that we are not primarily citizens of the earth any longer. You know what Christians are primarily a citizen of? Heaven. Even here, right now. Now, I know most time in, in, in Christian circles that I talk about, we talk about the gospel as the gospel that we've been saved from the penalty of sin. So Jesus Christ forgives our sin, right? And we also talk a lot about heaven and one day that we're gonna no longer have to deal with sin. But what about right now? What about here and now in the present? 
Did you know that the gospel is for now too? That we are not only saved from the penalty of sin and one day be saved from the presence of sin, but right now we're being saved by the, from the power of sin. The power of sin in our lives over and over and over, we are being redeemed as citizens of heaven now. We live on earth, but this is not our true home, is it? This is not where we finally rest. And so Paul says, live like you're already a citizen of the kingdom of heaven because you are. Because you're already brought in to a new family and to a new kingship that Jesus is our ultimate king. And so we reflect and we, we, we uh, represent him on the earth. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that, that the, we have this ministry of reconciliation because we've been reconciled before Christ. So this morning, my first question to you is if we were to evaluate your life, if people were to evaluate Nick Shock's life, and I'm not talking about what I say, I'm talking about how I use my money, my time, my energy, would they say that they see the good news of Jesus in that? I tell uh, parents a lot with our kids that we teach what we know, but we reproduce who we are. And in my life, I see this to be true, that I can tell my kids till I'm blue in face the gospel and how to live moral, upright lives and how to obey Jesus. But you know what they're really looking at? Looking at my conduct. They're looking at how I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I live, how I treat people. Is our life lived in a way that is pointing people to Christ, that is worthy of the gospel, the grace gift that we received? Enemies of God who've been rescued and made sons and daughters. What an awesome thought that we get to be those kind of people today because of Christ. So he says, live your life worthy of the gospel. And then he's gonna start to break this down for us a little bit. He's gonna actually explain how we can do that. The first thing he says is he says, I will hear about you standing firm, standing firm. Now, if you've been a Christian very long, um, I'm guessing you already know this to be true, but being a Christ follower is hard. Uh, Sometimes in the West, we have oversimplified the call to follow Jesus. While grace is a free gift, salvation is a free gift, The call to follow Jesus is not one in which we say, hey, just come and hang out. It is is a call to lay down us being in control, us being in charge. And and let me just tell you that the moment we do that, all hell breaks loose against us. In fact, I remind people all the time that when you follow Jesus, life usually doesn't get easier, it gets harder. Now, you have peace and hope and joy that you've never experienced before. You have God with you and in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, but life usually gets harder. And he says the first thing, you need to stand firm. Now, this is the same language he uses in Ephesians chapter 6. Anybody know what was in Ephesians chapter 6? Ephesians chapter 6 is a, uh, it got a section specifically about spiritual warfare. I don't know if you guys know this. I think most Christians will live oblivious to it. Um, some of you maybe are more aware than others, but we're in a spiritual battle. We're in an all-out war, in fact. Now, here's the great thing. We know who wins in the end. But right now, we are in a war. And, and, and the, the enemy that we have, 1 Peter 5 says, he is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is seeking to pick off people who are Christ followers and keep us um, on the sidelines, to keep us paralyzed, to keep us from engaging in the work that we've been given in Christ. And so I would say to you this morning, if you're going to live your life for Christ, if you're going to live in the, in the ways that, that is worthy of the gospel you received, you're going to have to stand firm. You're going to have to say, I am resolved to walk this thing out. Increasingly, it is becoming hostile for you to be Christ's follower in the culture in which we live. 
Increasingly, it is the, the culture is becoming more and more hostile uh, towards believers. Now, some of that we've brought on ourselves because we're jerks, okay? Sometimes Christians are just being jerks. Um, but a lot of that hostility comes in even us saying that, that it's only through Christ alone. Uh, the exclusivity of the gospel is not a popular message. Uh, the exclusivity of the gospel that calls people to Christ alone um, is, is not always a really popular message. But we can, we can proclaim that in love, and yet we will still have opponents. There will pe- be people who oppose us, and the enemy is working in that. And so we need to stand firm. He says it three times in Ephesians before he gets into the armor that we have to put on. Did you know you need to be put on spiritual armor? Men, hey, you should love this, right? We're in a battle. Come on, guys. We're in a war. If we're bored in church, it's because we're not engaged in the war. We have a battle that we're fighting. We have a war that we're in, and we have to stand firm. It's going to be difficult. We are going to have opposition. He says that. He says, don't be afraid of those who oppose you. I mean, do you guys know what Paul was doing when he was writing this letter? He was in prison. He had been, this, the, the, this guy had been beaten. He had been shipwrecked. He had been, he had been kicked out. He had been stoned uh, and left for dead. I mean, this guy had gone through all kinds of things, and now he's in prison, and he's writing this. He's like, don't be afraid of those who oppose you. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. And I want you to notice something else that he says. It's really interesting in verse 29. He says, for it has been given to you on Christ's behalf. So he says it's been given to you. Catch the rest of the words. For it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but what? To suffer for him. Wow. The language in there literally says that it's a grace gift for us to suffer. Now, I'll be honest with you. I didn't grow up learning that. I didn't think about it that way. I don't know about you guys, but I didn't really see um, suffering as a grace gift. But he's saying that it is, it is a grace gift for us to suffer. I told you guys that we, we've planted some churches in Austin, and, uh, in the Austin area, to be clear. Um, yeah, we learned, we learned when we moved south not to call Round Rock Austin. So anyway, um, but we've planted some churches in the Austin area. And I can tell you right now that what I've learned is that when you step up to the front lines of ministry, when you say we're going to go and actually try to reach the unchurched, dechurched, unbeliever, those who are resistant to the gospel, or resistant at least to Christianity, the faith, um, war intensifies. And it's like the crosshairs are even more on you and, and you're taking shots. And, and so I have learned to embrace suffering. I have learned to deal with that. And, and believe me, when I go overseas and I work with my brothers in China and in Kazakhstan and in different parts of the world, I've had the privilege of sitting in front of them. I feel like a total wuss. I'm just going to be honest. Because the type of suffering that they face is completely at a whole other level. But what I can say is that we've suffered as we've stepped up into what God has called us to do. And more and more and more, I'm learning to see suffering as a grace gift from God. And here's why. Because I'm learning that I don't grow unless I'm suffering. (laughs) That I don't grow in dependency on God. I don't grow in my view of how awesome he is. I don't grow in in the depth of love and genuineness of my faith without having to be pressed. It's just the way we are. We as humans, we love comfort. And part of the reason why the church in the West is anemic and many times immature is because we can comfort and pat our lives so much. We can avoid suffering. We can really do a lot of things with our money and and, and the way we can live our lives to to avoid some of the suffering. But here's what I've learned. Man, when God has brought suffering into my life, it has been the most growing time in my, my experience as a human. 
I remember, um, you know, saying to some church planters as I meet with church planters over coffee and they come to our city and they want to plant a church here. And, and I mean, they'll say like, hey, tell me about, you know, tell me about your, your uh, life and ministry and tell me what you do and, and give me some feedback on what we should we be thinking about as we come to Austin. And one of the things that I always would tell them is, listen, be ready to suffer. Be ready to go through hardship. Be ready to go through difficulty. I've walked alongside Tori through y'all's process here because we're basically on the same trajectory in terms of our churches. And um, he's had to suffer. Other leaders here have had to suffer through challenges. I don't know if you guys realize that or not. That's why he's on a sabbatical. He's like, I gotta have some space. I gotta have some rest. I'm just, I'm just tired. I'm taking shots. It's hard. But he would say the same thing to you if he was sitting here today. It's worth it. It is so worth it. And it is nothing compared to what Christ has suffered for us. Nothing compared. He is worthy of our little suffering in light of what he suffered so that we could be with him forever. We're gonna have to to deal with struggle. We're gonna have to deal with wrestling through the difficulties of life. And I just wanna encourage you today, don't run from suffering, embrace it. Peter says that. He says, just as Christ suffered, arm yourselves with the same attitude. If you were to look at the New Testament, you were to read the New Testament, you would not come up with a gospel that said, follow Jesus and your life will get better and easier. You would come up with a gospel that would say, if you follow Jesus, you're gonna have hardship. You would have trial. But you're also gonna get to see the faithfulness of God in that trial. You're gonna get to see the faithfulness and the goodness of our God through that trial. So my encouragement to you this morning, if that's encouraging, embrace suffering, okay? Stand firm. Secondly, he goes on to say, in one spirit, with one mind, working side by side. Maturity in the body of Christ is unity. It's unity. Ephesians 4, just one book previous, he basically says in Ephesians 4 that that when we mature and we grow up, we'll be unified to the wholeness of Christ, the fullness of Christ, that we will actually demonstrate Christ more fully when we're unified. Um, This has really become very big for me personally, over the, the last 18 months, if I can just be real vulnerable on the heels of this conversation about suffering, part of the suffering I've experienced as a church leader, as a pastor, as a church planner, has been division, has been struggle with people getting sideways. I know you guys don't have any of that here, but in our church, um, people are still selfish and, and, and still working through uh, immaturity. Um, since since we, we experience that, it can be really painful. It can be really hurtful. People that you love and you get really close to, uh, then turning. And, and so one of the things that I've experienced over the last 18 months that has been hard for me is to have people that we've ministered to and walked alongside of and, and really loved well um, just go sideways. And, and I would say in many ways, this might sound weird to some of you in this room, but to be under the influence of the enemy and to be used as an agent of division rather than unity. And I just, can I just tell you across the room that this morning, just, just a word to you, Listen, you need to keep your eyes on Jesus. He alone is the only one who can meet your needs perfectly. He is the only one who who has perfectly met you and served you in a way that will not fail you. And what I've learned about division is that division is always a byproduct of selfishness. That it comes when we put our eyes on ourselves and our needs and our wants and our preferences and our desires. But as we collectively, as a body, we look at Jesus we become unified around the person of Jesus. We become unified around our need for Jesus. In fact, what's great about Paul's words here where he says, with one mind and one spirit, working together side by side, 
is that, do you guys know the history of Philippians, uh, the, 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 the church at Philippi? Acts 16, I won't turn you there right now, but I'll tell you a little bit what goes on. Acts 16, we actually get the story. Remember, Paul's an evangelist. He's a church planner, and he goes to Philippi. And we get the first three of the first converts. We don't know if they were the first three, but we know there were three of the first converts in Philippi. And what unity does not mean is unity does not mean conformity, right? Unity does not mean that everybody looks the same, acts the same, talks the same, uh, you know, dresses the same. That's not what we mean by unity, and the reason I say that is because in Philippi, what you find is the, one of the first converts is a lady named Lydia. And she's like a wealthy business owner, kind of a fashionista. She probably had penthouses in multiple locations. I mean, this lady had some money. She was influential. And she comes to faith in Jesus. And she's one of the first converts there. So she's this really influential business lady who's got a lot of money. She works in, in, uh, in fine linens. The second one that we get the story of is this lady, uh, this servant girl, who's basically being used by her masters uh, to, to do things that are very um, unusual, spiritual, because she's demonically oppressed, uh, possessed, and, and she's basically walking around behind Paul, and she's annoying him. And I love it where Paul literally turns around and says, stop it. And he just says, uh, come out of, you know, come, spirit, come out of you. And basically this, this girl, uh, she's healed. The, the demon comes out of her and she becomes one of the, the main uh, converts there in, in Philippi early on in his ministry. And then the third one, Paul gets thrown into jail and, and he's in jail and like most of us in suffering, uh, while he's in jail, he's singing songs of praise and worship to God, right? That's what we all do when we, when we suffer. So he's there, he's singing songs of praise and worship to God. And in the midst of all that, God, of course, the shackles come off, he, uh, he, there's an earthquake, and he gets out of the jail, and as he's going out, the jailer who's there knows that he is doomed, that he is done, that he's going to get in trouble, he's going to get killed, because if these prisoners get out, and Paul says, hey, don't harm yourself, we're right here, and then he shares the gospel with him, and so he becomes a convert. So now you've got a fashionista, fancy businesswoman, you've got uh, a slave girl who is demonic, uh, in a, a possessed, and you got a jailer, a blue-collar jailer who uh, basically was trying to kill himself because he's uh, worried about his job because these guys bust out of prison. These were three of the first people. Do you think that they would have hung out together normally? <laughs> They're like, hey, let's all go to, to hang out at the coffee shop, right? No, these people would not be in the same room together, and yet they all needed Jesus. What I love about when I look across this room, and I looked across the room earlier in the early service, is to see the diversity. If you come to to Point Community Church in South Austin, you'll see the same thing. You see the diversity because it doesn't matter what, what language you speak, what race you are, what clothes you wear, what place you work in. We all need Jesus, the gospel. And what I get super excited about is I get super excited some days when I start thinking about heaven. And I start thinking about the diversity of every tribe and every tongue and every nation across this globe actually sitting around the throne of Jesus, worshiping him, the throne of God one day. It's gonna be awesome. I said this is the first hour, I say this to you. If you don't like diversity, you aren't gonna like heaven, okay? If you, I'm just telling you right now, because heaven is, is gonna be amazing, and it's gonna be amazing once it's because of just simply the diversity of God's creatures who are all worshiping him together. Rich, poor, young, old, smart, not so smart. Whatever it might be, we have all these things that, that make us different, and yet we all come together and we rally around the person of Jesus. That's living a life in, in, a, in, a, in a manner, in a conduct that is worthy of the gospel we've received. Listen, Christ in John 17, he prayed one of the most amazing prayers. Some of you guys know this prayer. John, go read it this week. John 17, 
It's called the high priestly prayer. And he prayed this. And one of the things that Jesus prayed for is he prayed for oneness. And he said that the world would know that we are his representatives, that we actually believe the gospel when we are unified, we are one together, just as the Father and him are one. But here's the great thing. Jesus did not just pray for unity, he purchased it. He didn't just pay for it. I mean, just pray for it, he paid for it, okay? It's awesome that he did that and he broke down the wall of hostility as it says in Ephesians. Finally, not only do we need to stand firm in the face of suffering, and I encourage you to do that this morning, to embrace it, to realize it's gonna be hard, but it's worth it. Not only do we need to pursue unity, get our eyes off of ourselves and put our eyes on Christ so that we can actually see our king and follow him and submit to him in all of our lives, but also he says, the work that we're actually doing, let's look, like what is the focus of that work? 12 times in this first chapter, Paul's already talking about the gospel. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. This good news that our salvation is not based on what we have done, but what Christ has done. That we could never save ourselves, but Christ has saved us. That we are those sinners who need saving, those rebellious punks who God rescued. The enemies that he made sons and daughters. And we see that he says, the focus is for the faith that comes from the gospel. The work that we are to do is for the faith that comes from the gospel. Notice he doesn't say, for our political positions. He doesn't say for our personal aspirations or agendas. He doesn't say even for social justice or our religion. He says the gospel, for the work of the gospel. Those other things are all shaped by the gospel. They should be informed by the gospel, but those are not priority. And so what I'm saying to you this morning, church, is we've gotta keep the main thing the main thing. If we are gonna offend people, let them be offended by the cross of Christ, not by all the other things that we add to it. It's not Jesus plus all these other things, right? It's Jesus alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if people are going to be offended by the exclusivity of the gospel, let's let's make sure that we do that in love. Let's make sure that we do that with grace and compassion and humility, but let's not water down or compromise the truth of God. Paul says it this way. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Guys, do you believe that today? Do you believe that people are only saved by grace through faith, like Ephesians 2.8 says? If you do, we have work to do. If you do, we have a message to proclaim, and that message is power. Romans 10 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here today and you've never called on his name before. Maybe you're trying to figure him out. Maybe you're trying to work through the rationale of who is this person, Jesus? Is he real? Is this whole thing real? Maybe you're, you're wrestling that all out. I would just simply say that if you're in that place today, that would you just pray a simple prayer? God, if you're real, would you show me who you are? Just pray it. I dare you. I challenge you just to, to pray that. If you're, a, if you're a person in this room who's wrestling with that, I just encourage you, just, just ask a simple prayer and be ready for an answer from our God because he is faithful and he is good. If you are in your life trying to earn your way to God, if you're trying to do enough good stuff, I just want you to know you can't. You can never do enough. We're not saved by good works. We're not saved by being good dads, good moms, uh, good workers, good students, good sons, good daughters. We're not saved by that stuff. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we saved. I get to do funerals periodically, and, and uh, um, it's something that 
is really profound and, and really sobering for me every time I do it. And one of the things that I've gotten to do recently is do two funerals that were men who were very old and they had um, lived really moral, upright lives. And, and they knew Jesus, by the way. They were, they were godly men. And what was great at the funerals is both of the people that asked me to do the funerals, they said, hey, would you really preach the gospel? Would you preach the gospel? I said, absolutely. You have all these people that are here. They're going to get to be here to celebrate this, this awesome man's life. I would, I would be privileged to share the good news of Jesus with those people. And in both of those scenarios, I feel like the Lord led me to the same consistent thing in that all the people that were there paying their respects and really honoring the lives of these people, I think in their mind, they thought, this guy was such a good guy, he has to be in heaven. I mean, he was such a good guy, he was such a good husband, such a good dad, such a good worker, he has to be in heaven. And God said, <laughs> challenge them because here's the truth. Those people, those two men that I did those funerals for, they're not with Jesus today because they were good men. They're not, good, they're not in heaven today because they, they earned their way. They're there because both of those men said, our trust is in Jesus Christ. And I heard for the first time, men and women, they came forward, they said, we've never heard that so clearly before. The Spirit of God was working. And that's just what I said, that's what the Spirit told me to say. (laughs) I'm just trying to be the messenger. Because some of us have a false idea that if we can just be good enough, we can get into the kingdom of God. Christ alone is good enough. We'll never get there. We can't get there. Now, As we think about this gospel, as I said, I get pretty excited because in John 20, 21, Jesus said, just as I was sent, so I send you. And he breathed the Holy Spirit on him. He said, you're not going by yourself. You're going with my power and my presence with you. And in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Greece, Israel and Jordan, anywhere in the world, all over the world, preach the gospel, preach the good news, make disciples, right, of all nations. In Acts 1, be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts, be my witnesses. The reason that God did not beam us to heaven the moment we put our trust in Christ is because we got work to do. We got a mission. We live in a city that needs Jesus desperately. I love Austin. It's one of the coolest cities on the planet. It's a great place to live. It's a great place to raise family. It's a great place to enjoy. But the reason I moved here is not just because it's a cool city. I moved here because God said, this city needs Jesus. And our family uprooted from Houston and moved here 12 years ago because we wanted to link arms. We wanted to partner with other churches across this city to say, we wanna see every man, woman, and child in our lifetime have the opportunity to know Christ. We wanted to proclaim the gospel here. We wanted to, to reach people. Even this morning as we were in the room back here before the first service praying, we called out names of people that we know in this city who need Jesus. And I was thinking about the guys at the little coffee shop that I sit on a regular basis, Noah and, and Rob, they desperately need Jesus. And I'm praying and I'm, I'm getting to know them, their stories and hearing their, their journeys and hearing why that they hate Christians, really, they hate Christians because of their experience and their interaction with believers, which makes my heart so sad. But my prayer is that God would rescue them, he would save them and that I would be a faithful gospel witness, that I would live a life worthy of the gospel in front of them that they would see the good news and they would hear the good news from my lips. And I'm praying that for us as a movement, as an association, uh, as churches across the city who are proclaiming Jesus unashamedly, without compromise, because we truly believe he is the way, the truth, and the life. 
my encouragement to you this morning, my invitation to you this morning, is are you participating? Are, are, you, being a, are you a part of the, the mission that God's called us to? You're here to be salt and to be light. You're here to proclaim the message to your family members, to your coworkers, to your classmates. You are here not by accident. We say it to church planners all the time. In Acts, he says, God appoints where men would live so that people would reach out to him. We have a job to do, a task to do. And here's the thing. It's not a, a have to, it's a get to. You know what I'm saying? It's not like a eat your vegetables kind of thing. It's a, we get to partake in this thing. We actually get to experience it. Again, for some of us who might be bored with this whole Christian life thing, Join the mission. One of your primary identities because of the gospel is a missionary. As uh, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, he says, every Christ follower is a missionary or an imposter. (laughs) Ouch. We have been called into this new identity to be missionaries, to be sons and daughters who represent our king, our father, our savior. And I'm praying that today you are engaging, you are embracing, it will probably lead to hardship in your life. Just heads up. But you know what? It's worth it. It's good. May we live a life worthy of the gospel we have received. May we stand firm. May we be unified in the work that God's called us to. May we be a people who understand how precious, how amazing, how awesome this gift is. Let me, let me just say this as I close. We want to saturate this city with the gospel, but gospel saturation of our city starts with gospel saturation of our own hearts. And I grew up a church brat, just like Adam over here. Nine months before I was born, I was hearing sermons, okay? I, I've heard so many sermons. I've heard the gospel so many times. And, and even this morning as I preach it to you, I've asked the Holy Spirit, asked God to just make it fresh in my heart that I deserve eternal damnation. That's what I deserve. And God graciously has gifted me eternal life, life with him forever. This morning, do you know the gospel? Do you know that you have a God who created you and who sent his son to save you, to rescue you? Do you know that? And if you know that, I'm confident, I'm convinced that you cannot sit on that message, but that you must overflow into all of your life, every part of your life, not just your Sunday life, not just your community group life like we talked about earlier, but every part of your life. The fact is, is that in this section of scripture, he says something very sobering. He says about the opposition that's rising up I don't know if you saw that, verse 28. He says, this is a sign of destruction for them, but of your deliverance. What is Paul saying? He's saying there's a day coming when we will no longer be able to proclaim the gospel. The the, the mission's time bound. There's a day coming when you will not be able to tell your your parents, your friends, your siblings. You will not be able to tell your neighbors. You will not be able to tell your coworkers. You will not be able to tell them the gospel anymore. That time will be over. And he says in this passage, it's not something we like to meditate on, we like to think about. It says, that destruction is coming for those who are not in Christ. And he says deliverance is coming for those who are in Christ. The reason I say that this morning is not to 
produce unhealthy fear, but to just remind us of the seriousness that eternity is long and separation from God is not good. You see, we have the answer. We have the hope. We have the message of Christ. And in case you didn't know this, the Bible tells us that a day, just one chapter over from this, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before Jesus Christ that he is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every famous person you can think of right now will bow before King Jesus. Every person who's rich, every person who's poor, every person who has got the, the best house in Austin, every person who's got the worst place in Austin, we will all bow before King Jesus one day. It's happening. It's, it's going to happen. All, will we be ready for that day? Will the people that we love and know and interact with on a daily basis, rub shoulders with, will they know Jesus Christ on that day? My prayer is that when I get to that day and I'm with all the diversity of all those people around the throne of Jesus, that I can say, God, I gave my life, time, my money, my blood, my sweat, my tears. I gave it to help people know Jesus, to help people know the gospel. I can't save people, you can't save people, but we can be faithful messengers. We can partner together. Let's do that, all right? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this room of people who are here as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm so grateful that I get to be um, just even looking at them in the face and, and thinking, God, this is some of my spiritual family that I'm gonna spend eternity with. God, I'm in awe of that. I'm honored that even just to get to proclaim the gospel and remind ourselves this morning that we are not saved by our good works and we're not unsaved by our bad things. Thank you, God, that we have the hope of Christ. Thank you that we have the hope and we have the surety of knowing that in Christ we are forgiven, we are reconciled, and now we are ministers of that reconciliation to the world around us. Um, God, I just pray that you would lead us this morning through this time of response. And if there's anyone in this place who's never embraced the good news of the gospel and received the gift of the gospel, I pray that today might be that moment for them. I pray that. Pray, Holy Spirit, even now, we just remind them that they are loved by you, that you're pursuing them. And for us, God, who know the gospel, may we never get to the place where we are just indifferent to it. Forgive us when we do. Oh, God, forgive us. When it's just another message, just another thing we say, God, help us to be awakened this morning, to stand in awe, that the, that the spiritual amnesia that we're plagued with, God, would, would be removed and that our eyes would see with freshness how beautiful you are, how great your redemption is. We pray this in your name, amen.